Stay standing and take out your Bibles, please. And let's open them up this morning to Romans chapter 9. We are going to read not quite the whole chapter, but we're going to read a good portion of it. Uh, First time that we've uh, read this as we've been working through here. So we'll read down through uh, verse 29 to get us a good start as we begin this this morning. Romans chapter 9, this of course is the Word of God. So let us pay attention as God speaks to us through His Word this morning. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger." As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully 
and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become, been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us by your grace and through the inspiration of your spirit that we might uh, hear from you in its pages. We pray, Lord, also that as you have ordained the preaching of this word uh, to be a means of grace, we ask that you would truly make it so this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through this time, and we pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and the head of the church. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we typically begin each sermon with some sort of an introduction. Introduction, various kinds, various lengths. Sometimes they're long, sometimes they're short. Sometimes it includes a review of what we looked at the previous week to kind of get us up to speed. Uh, Sometimes it's a question that that I put to you to sort of get you thinking in the direction that we'll be going. Sometimes a a word picture, sometimes an illustration again to sort of set the mood for what we'll be seeing in the passage. Uh, This morning, if you follow the outline in your bulletin, you'll see that the introduction this morning has a number next to it. Number one, usually they're not numbered, it's just mentioned that there's an introduction, but this is part of the sermon this morning, uh, because this is where we're going to begin this morning, is with an introduction, and that's because we're coming into a new part of the book of Romans, Uh, because Paul, fresh off of that glorious crescendo in the last nine verses of chapter eight concerning our assurance the assurance of those that God has called into his marvelous light. This morning he begins a new section of the letter to the Roman church. Uh, If you notice at the beginning of verse 1, very often as we've gone through this, I've drawn your attention to little words like for and, and therefore and so and what shall we say then and things like that. You'll see that there's none of that at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. None of those telltale signs that this is a a continuation of what's gone before. There's a new section. This is not to say that this is totally unconnected with the rest of the letter, but this is clearly a new section, a a hard break. Um, It's almost jarring, actually, by its difference with the end of chapter 8. You know, Paul, with the the conclusion of chapter 8, then, has completed his powerful, masterful, logical presentation of the doctrines of man's sinfulness and of God's grace shown in his free justification of believing sinners through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and and the work of Christ that, that grounds that justification, the work of the Holy Spirit who works in those who have been justified. With that all complete now, We might expect him to turn, as he often does in his letters, to immediately to the practical section of the book and an appeal to, oh, I don't know, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But we don't find that here. He saves that for chapter 12, which is where he begins his more practical section of the book. 
But in between chapter 8 and chapter 12, he inserts this section that we're going to begin to look at this morning, verses or chapters 9 through 11. After he's talked about justification and after he's talked about uh, the, the gospel that goes out to the Jew and the Gentile and how he has told us about God's grace, how he has exalted God's grace, how he has sort of brought us along from guilt to grace and the wonders of what God has done, Paul now comes to deal with this question, what about the Jews? Particularly, how, how do we understand their rejection, by and large, of all of this? And what does that mean? Or, or what doesn't it mean? How do we fit that in, in regard to the, the plans of God and the promises of God regarding them? How do we process the, the situation of the Jewish people? You know, as we read through the, the New Testament, especially as we read through the book of Acts, we see this. We see actually two undeniable facts about the Jewish people of Paul's day. One is that by and large, the Jews reject Christ as the Messiah, which they still do today. They reject the teaching of the gospel and the means of attaining a right standing with God through faith in Christ that the gospel presents. The other thing that we learn is that the most intense opposition to that gospel, to those doctrines, of Paul's preaching of those doctrines in the early church, came from the Jews. We read how it is the Jews who come against him. We read how in every city as he goes first to the synagogue, that, that the typical pattern is that, that is, he is rejected and then he leaves from there and goes then to the Gentiles of that city. What of that? What about, what about God and what about his promises? What about the nation, the only nation in the Old Testament that, that, or to whom God had revealed himself? What about the promises that God made to them? Why did they reject God's provision through the Messiah. What does that all mean? What does that all say about the Jewish people? What does it say about the plan of God? What does it say really about the nature of God? These are questions of concern, beloved, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, to us as well. Because if, as it may seem, if God was unable to keep his people, his Old Testament people, if he was unable to keep the Jews and to bring them to salvation, how can we be sure that he can keep us? So those are all the issues that we'll be dealing with in Romans 9 through 11 as Paul tackles those issues, those questions. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that these chapters are not completely disassociated from the earlier parts of the book. Uh, Paul has a, a method, and he uses it especially here in the book of Romans. He has a, a habit of mentioning something briefly in the letter and then sort of just leaving it and coming back to it and picking it up again later. And that seems to be what he has done here at the beginning of chapter 9. 
In, in fact, keep your finger here in chapter 9 and just turn back a few pages to the beginning of chapter 3. While you're doing that, I can admit that even prior to chapter 3, in the last part of chapter 2, Paul has come down pretty hard on the hypocrisy of the Jews in thinking that they were morally superior to the Gentiles while all the while doing the same things that the Gentiles do. And thus Paul came to the conclusion that you are really causing your, your outward devotion to the ceremonial aspects of your religion to really be worthless because you've not followed it up with a sincere um, evidence of, of believing in God. But then he mentions there in, in chapter 2, verse 28, before we get to chapter 3 there, in verse 28, something that he and we will be looking at next week when he says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. He goes on to say, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Uh, that's important. Well, that's next week, though. We should put that away and resist going down that rabbit trail too early. Uh, but at, look at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And then he goes on, but then he, he, he does not follow that through. It's interesting in verse 2, he says, much in every way. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But then he doesn't go on after the to begin with. Those thoughts there are now going to be picked up again by Paul and worked out in three chapters, chapters 9 through 11. So some detail we're going to see here. In these chapters, again, we're going to look at the question of Israel and how we should understand their rejection of the gospel and what exactly that says about the status of Israel. And more importantly, spoiler alert here, Paul will be looking at what this says about God and about his word, about his promises, about his faithfulness. The tragedy of Israel will lead us to a discussion of God's intent and his sovereignty and his freedom. The issues of election and mercy and wrath, as we read that part of chapter 9 this morning, you saw that we we're going to be into some pretty heavy stuff again. Uh, the sad case of Israel and how they have stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ. But then we will also see, as we get later into this section, how God's promises are fulfilled in what Paul calls the remnant of Israel. We'll see about the restoration of Israel that God had talked about in the Old Testament, the conversion of Israel, and how we should view these things regarding Israel and the church. And we will witness all of this as Paul speaks of the tragedy of Israel, the sovereignty of God, and the fulfillment of his promises. That's kind of a broad outline of what we're going to see here in, in these three chapters. This morning... We're looking at how Paul introduces this new topic and speaks of his own anguish as he considers the tragedy of Israel, particularly in these first five verses. Let's, to wrap up our introduction here, let's read those verses again. 
Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So having seen the introduction and introduced this, uh, let's look at our second point now, which is the depth of Paul's anguish as he expresses it here. And part of the jarring break between chapter 8 and chapter 9 is seen really in the, the sudden and drastic change of tone. Last week, remember, as we, we went from this place, we went with our hearts rejoicing and lifted up as Paul had, in the height of jubilation, explained to us, laid out for us the truth that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That no one can condemn those whom God has justified. That no one can effectively come against us as Christians because God is for us. It was a glorious end to a glorious chapter. But now, the very next sentence, and remember, chapter breaks, verse uh, designations are all not part of the original text. It was a letter. So this will be a new paragraph. But the very next sentence, now after that height of, of jubilation, Paul speaks of great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And he starts by, by convincing us of the truth and the depth of the expression of, of anguish that he gives at the beginning of verse 2 or in verse 2. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure we believe him. Uh, when we were kids, or when I was a kid, um, when we wanted to impress on someone the sincerity of something or the truthfulness of something that we said, something that we were uh, about to say, we would, we would say, somewhat graphically, we would say, I swear to God and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Where do kids come up with this stuff? Uh, but Paul, while not using the language of swearing an oath before God, he states rather firmly for us how serious he is about this. He says it positively. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am speaking as a Christian, united to Christ. In, in that way, I tell you this. Then he states it negatively. I'm not lying. He brings his conscience to bear. My conscience, he says, bears me witness. I'm being true to myself. I'm being true to my convictions. I'm being true to my thoughts on this. And it does so. It bears witness to him, he says, as one who is indwelt and motivated by the Holy Spirit. 
He just kind of stacks up, piles up these affirmations here in this opening verse. The things that he is about to talk about are are far from just a peripheral issue to Paul. And when we come to understand Paul's core concern, which we'll see next week, we'll better understand Paul's concern. But even here, he shows that his feelings are sincere. He shows that, that this is a true issue of his heart. And there's really, in Paul's writings, there's really no parallel to, to the, such breadth and depth of concern and of affirmation expressed here by Paul. And what is it that, that he is so sure about and that he wants us to be so sure that he is so sure about? Well, it's in verse 2. He says all of those things, and, and then he says, that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what Paul wants us to know at the beginning of this section. His grief, his sorrow, his affliction of mind, his affliction of heart are are great in magnitude. It's a great sorrow and unceasing in duration. He says unceasing anguish. But that's not all even. Paul takes it even a step further though we'll see it's not quite what sometimes we think. It's still an amazing statement here in verse 3 by the apostle. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's heavy, isn't it? And we, we, we recognize that. And we, we, we talk about that from time to time, what Paul says here. But we do need to sort of temper our reading of that and, and remove sort of the really over-the-top way that sometimes we think of Paul's statement here. Because some people read that and they say, wow, Paul wished that God would take away his salvation, is basically what he's saying, in order to give it to his brother, the Jews. Well, not quite. Paul doesn't say, I wish that I myself were accursed. Because there's another word in there. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed. That causes us to step back just a little. Because Paul knows in saying this that God doesn't work like that. He knows that he could not trade his salvation for that of his countrymen. So he's saying, I I could wish that. He's not saying, I do wish that. But we don't want to downplay the seriousness of what he says either. He's saying something like, and by the way, the word um, wish is the word that's usually translated in the New Testament, pray. So Paul is saying something like, if it were permissible for me to, to pray this way, And if the answer would benefit my fellow Jews, I would do so. I would pray in that way. So it's something of a contemplated action rather than an actual one. But still, it expresses the the seriousness, the sorrow, and the anguish that the Apostle Paul has in regard to his countrymen. 
Now, in regard to that statement that he makes, it is very possible here, and, and we'll, we, as we go through chapters 9 through 11, there are, very, there are several places where Paul brings in echoes of, of the work of Moses and the time of Moses. And this could be one of those places. It could be that Paul is seeing himself in this context somewhat in the role of Moses in the Old Testament, who himself, Moses, responded very similarly after the incident with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember the incident of them worshiping the golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain getting the law of God, that his people are down there deciding, we don't know when Moses is coming back, so we need something to worship. We need a way to worship God, so, so Aaron, make us something. And he makes them uh, the, the golden calf which they worship. Moses comes down, um, and on his way back he hears uh, not the sound of war, but the sound of, of celebration. And when he comes and he sees what's going on, he puts a stop to it. He disciplines the people for their gross idolatry. The next day, this is in Exodus 32, Moses says to the people, you have committed a great sin. But he says, I am going to go before the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he goes before the Lord and he says this in verse 30 through 32. He says, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, then he adds this, and if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. Probably a reference there to what we would call the book of life in the New Testament. So Moses asks something similar It's also important, remember, to hear God's answer that he gave to Moses. It was this, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And Paul knows, here back in Romans 9, Paul knows that there is only one who could bear the curse for someone else. That's Christ, who has And Paul certainly knew that if Moses' similar request had been denied, that it would be useless for him so to pray. But it's an expression here of the the depth of Paul's concern for the situation with the Jews. Expressed in these first three verses of chapter 9 in Romans, and it certainly grabs our attention as Paul begins this three-chapter section about the Jewish people. And what is the issue? What is Paul so ceaselessly distraught about? What so burdens him that if he could wish such a thing, if he could pray for such a thing, that he would? Well, that brings us to our last point, and we'll take up the rest of our time this morning, and that's the reason for Paul's anguish. It's interesting that we are not told explicitly what the problem is until we get down to the opening verses of chapter 10. But we don't have to wait for that to understand what the problem is. It's clearly and strongly implied in what we have here in these verses. By what Paul says in verse 3. 
Paul's contemplated wish, his contemplated prayer, is that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, he says. For the sake of them. That's a phrase that, that, that means instead of or in the place of. And it's used that way throughout the New Testament. So if Paul is speaking of, of his being accursed and cut off from Christ in the place of his brothers, if that's something that he could wish, then the reason for his anguish, obviously, is that his brothers at present are themselves accursed and cut off from Christ. That's what troubles the apostles so much. Paul's sorrow and his anguish is because of the Jewish rejection of Jesus the Messiah and their resulting state of being accursed. So Paul's wish that, or or possibility of him wishing that he himself were accursed is because his people are accursed. (coughs) That word there, accursed, is a word that you probably are more familiar to, actually, in its original form. In the Greek word that is translated here, accursed, the word is anathema. It means to bear the curse of God, and thus to be separated, to be cut off from Christ, the only way of salvation. Remember, that's the word that Paul uses twice in his opening chapter of his letter to the Galatian church where he speaks of the, uh, the curse upon any, even if it's an angel from heaven, anyone who preached a gospel to the Galatians different than the gospel that the apostles preached. Paul says, let him be anathema. Twice. It carries the idea of eternal condemnation. This is the subject of Romans 9 through 11. This is the situation of the Jews. The situation that they find themselves in because of their unbelief. Because of their rejection as a nation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because they have looked to the law instead of to Christ for righteousness and for forgiveness. Because of those things, they bear not the blessing of God, but the curse of God. And Paul can hardly bear that, to consider that. He can't bear it without the anguish that he describes. And Paul speaks of them as, my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is why Paul is so sorrowful. Because they're his people, his countrymen. And he weeps over it, as it were. Just as Jesus himself, remember, wept over Israel's refusal to receive their Messiah. The Messiah that God sent according to his promises in the Old Testament in Matthew 23. He weeps over them. How many times would I have come to you and taken you under my wing? He says, but you would not. As John wrote in the opening of his gospel, that Jesus, the Logos, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
That's the situation here. And so this brings upon Paul great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And how to account for that rejection is part of what we need to look at in these verses. And it hurts Paul. Because, we must not forget this, that though though Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, he himself is a Jew. Born Saul. Probably named after Israel's first king. Born, as, we, as, he, as he tells the church, born, born in an observant, dedicated Jewish household. Circumcised according to the law of Moses. His own ancestry able to be traced back to the tribe of Benjamin. Brought up in the Jewish religion. Trained under the most revered rabbi of the day, if not of all days, other than Christ a member of the most strict Jewish religious group, the Pharisees. But when he was confronted by the risen Christ and converted that day on the road to Damascus, he was told that he was chosen by God to bear the name and the message of Christ before, yes, the kings and yes, the sons of Israel, Acts 9.15 says, but it begins by saying, before the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission. That was Paul's work. He's known throughout history as the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter sent to the Jews. Paul sent to the Gentiles specifically. But he is still a Jew. And he never shrunk back from that fact. He never forgot that fact. And he still bore a heart for his people. That they might hear, that they might believe the truth that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Him whom God promised and the prophets foretold. Paul had a concern for his people. I mentioned earlier that when he would come to a town, the first place he would go was to the synagogue. It would be largely Jewish. And he would preach Christ then to them. And typically they would reject it and kick him out. And so he would go to the Gentiles. Here he calls the Jews my brothers. And then my kinsmen according to the flesh. That last bit is a sad addition really. That they are merely his kinsmen according to the flesh. The heart of the apostle was that they would be his kinsmen according to faith. Even as you are. Even as we are, all who are brought to Christ by Christ. Even as we today each have those, sadly, who are kinsmen, who are family, only according to the flesh. But how blessed we are, beloved, to have kinsmen according to the faith. You're surrounded by them this morning. Praise God for them every single day, Christian. They are a great gift to you. But also pray for those who are your earthly family, only your countrymen according to the flesh, only those whose relationship you have with them is merely on a horizontal plane. That's the situation for Paul. And as Paul then begins to speak about those who are are such a love and such a burden to his heart, he now begins to expound and expand why it is that it is so hurtful to him? Why is it that it is so 
terrible that they have rejected Christ. And he goes back and now he picks up that list that we saw back in chapter 3 in verses 1 through 4 where he gave the first item. That they have been given the oracles of God. What advantage has the Jew, he asked back there. And he gave that brief answer. He said, to begin with, which he'll now pick up here, but to begin with, he says, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. Now he picks that up. And as he gives each item in this list, it must be to him a fresh arrow through his soul as each benefit turns sour and indeed deadly as Jesus to whom they all should have pointed um, as Jews is rejected by them. And we should remember here that Paul is speaking broadly. He's speaking nationally, of course. And of course, and this will be part of Paul's teaching in these chapters, there are those who do trust God, those of the Jews who do trust God and His provision, who do believe in Christ as the Messiah. They are the promised remnant which God has always maintained and always preserves. But let's look then at these benefits that that are granted to God's people, the Jews. Matter of fact, when we come to the first one, it sort of puts an end for the most part, or puts to an end for the most part, Paul's use of the term Jews in these chapters. In fact, he'll use that term Jew or Jews once in chapter 9, once in chapter 10, and twice in chapter 11. But he refers to them 11 times as Israel, twice as Israelites, as he does here in verse 4 where he begins the list and he says, they are Israelites. That is, they are not just an ethnic group of people. They're not just the Jews. They're not just a nation of people. But they are the covenant people of God. They are Israelites because they are the children of Israel. And their identification as Israelites really hints at, at Paul's primary issue. Because it is not just their failure to believe that concerns the Apostle Paul, but their failure to believe in light of the benefits that they had as God's people. And that's what he's beginning to lay out here. There's no excuse. Because to them were entrusted, as he said back in chapter 3, the oracles of God. And they are God's people, His covenant people. And as we'll work through later, the problem Paul is working us through here is that the Jews, the Israelites, although verse 3 says that they are in one sense cut off from Christ, in another sense they are a people, according to the Old Testament, to whom belong a list of benefits. And again, the question of chapters 9 through 11 is how, how does that all fit? And he says... To them belong, he begins by saying, to them belong the adoption is the first thing. We learned recently, didn't we, in chapter 8 and verse 15, that we who are in Christ have adoption. We have been adopted by God. We've been given the spirit of adoption. Well, in the Old Testament, God's people were said to be God's adopted children. They were people chosen by Him, set aside by Him, taken to Himself by Him. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God said, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. 
All the rights and the privileges under the Old Covenant were there. Uh, as, as God said to Pharaoh, uh, Israel is my son. His adopted son. So to them, Paul says, is that great privilege. Also, he says, that to them belongs the glory. This is probably a reference to what we think of as the Shekinah glory. The presence of God. That, that led his people through the wilderness as a fiery cloud that went before them. That presence that, that filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. That was given to the children of Israel and no one else. A great blessing that they had. To them, he said, goes on and says, belongs the covenants. The binding oaths that God made with his people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and reiterated through Moses and gave through David. God binding himself to this people, promising to be their God. Again, God thus bound himself to the Israelites and to no one else in the Old Testament. Next, He says, to them belongs the giving of the law. Another manifestation of God's special, unique relationship to the Jews of the Old Testament, to Israel in the Old Testament. His care of them, his regulation of them as his people. He was their king. To them belong the worship. Paul says, specifically this refers to the worship of the tabernacle, the worship of the temple with its sacrificial system, the means of of coming to God, of approaching God, of worshiping God, and being forgiven by God in his sight, the daily sacrifices all culminating on the, the day of atonement, that too was given to the Israelites, to his covenant people. As were the rest of, as Paul says here, the promises. All of those covenant promises. I will be your God and you will be my people. The promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or to Israel, to Moses, to David, to the prophets. Promises of a coming Messiah. Promises of one sent from God who would be God, who would come and who would rescue his people through Uh, from their sin and through his own sacrifice in their place would bring them to God. These things, Paul says, were all theirs. In verse 5, then, he gives two more benefits that were given to the Israelites. First, he says, to them belong the patriarchs. To them belong the ones that they could look back to and remember these are the men that God originally came to and spoke to and bound himself to. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Israelites are Israelites because of God's gracious dealing with them. These men who received the covenantal promises are Israel. The patriarch Jacob was renamed by God in Genesis 35.10, Israel. That's why we call the Israelites the sons of Israel, the people of Israel. From him, from Jacob, from Israel, came the twelve tribes, the children of Israel. 
And then look at verse 5 again. He says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here is a high point of the benefits. Though notice a little different wording here. It is not, to them was the Christ, like it was in the rest of these, because the Messiah, the Christ, does not belong to Israel, but he is from Israel. He is from that race. He arose from that people. It is specifically Christ in his incarnation that is from their race, right? According to the human nature. Back in Romans chapter 1, right? The very beginning of the book. Paul says regarding the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The NIV there says that his human ancestry is traced from Israel. It is the Christ who, according to the flesh, is descended from that list. Jesus was a Jew, is what Paul is saying. Jesus was an Israelite. The Messiah was promised to come from God's people, and he did. Anointed and sent by God, the Deliverer and Savior, who was promised to rescue his people, to usher in a time of prosperity and peace and rest as the divine prophet and priest and king. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, one of the tribes of the people of Israel. That's all according to the flesh. But there's one other thing. There's one thing more. At the end of the verse, we see why Paul is so careful to note that it is according to the flesh that he is from Israel. Because he is more. He is more than a descendant from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. Paul concludes this opening introduction to, these, uh, to this section with a, a Christological doxology, a statement of praise of the deity of Christ. He is not just according to the flesh, but he, and Paul makes a statement here that would have infuriated the Jews when he says that Jesus is not just according to the flesh, but he is God. Let me just stop there. He is God. He is God. And he is God over all. He is God blessed forever, this Jesus, this Messiah, this descendant from David that the Israelites had rejected. He, Christ, from whom no one can separate us as God's people, whom the Israelites were were so blind and foolish to reject, He is the one who is over all. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who speaks And it is so. He is the one, as Paul himself writes elsewhere, whom God has highly exalted and on whom the Father has bestowed the name that is above every name. 
As Paul said in Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what a wonderful place that is for us to end a very troubled opening, a very sad state of affairs. And we'll see next week the stakes are even higher than, than just to the Jews for their rejection of Christ, than just for us to understand the truth about Israel's rejection of the Messiah. As we see how God will use even that for his ultimate and eternal glory. The Jews had been given much, but rejected Christ. We should be, Christian, all the more thankful all the more humble, all the more thankful to, to him that he has sovereignly, savingly revealed himself to us. Who Paul says in the book of Ephesians, were once afar off, but have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. We have been brought into his kingdom to the eternal praise of his wonderful grace. And to that we end as Paul ends right there at the end of verse 5 by saying together, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning as we, we embark on this new section of your wonderful word. We pray that you would help us to, to even this morning orient ourselves to what is going to come. We, we look forward to what you will teach us as, as we open up your word and as we see what, what caused uh, your people to reject your son, uh, how to see that in, in the teaching of your word, how to look to some of the serious issues that will come up in this book. And as we look to your faithfulness to your promises and ultimately rejoice in your wisdom. We thank you, Father, for this time. We pray that you would bless us as we've heard your word and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.